And so when I discovered that he had been having this um, this extramarital affair relationship, it was crushing to me. And I wanted to die, what? literally. Right, right. And before we even get to the the pivot and going back to school, I, I, yeah. I, I'm still trying to paint. Go ahead. <laughs> The, the picture of where you are, right? And especially in the first five years. So yeah. And for your mom and grandmother <laughs> to see that, right? To, to see that and be like, okay, we got to have an intervention. Intervention. Do you remember, like in the, those moments, even though you felt honored and you wanted to be a good wife, were you tired, girl? Were you? Yeah. Excited? I lived tired. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no worries. <clears throat> I lived tired. I was working full time. The girls were in diapers again up until maybe like three and four. Um, so I had two toddlers essentially. I was serving in multiple capacity. I was like an armor bearer or an adjutant to my pastor's wife, my first lady. I was like a women's group uh, leader. I was on an accessory prayer team. I served in like five or six different roles in ministry. And I remember before he and I got married, we had this conversation. He said, you know, anybody that I marry has to understand that ministry is my life. I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing ministry. Yeah. So it's kind of like an understanding that this was the expectation. Yeah. You, if you're, we're going to be together, if we were ever to get married, ministry was going to be the center of our life. And I was okay with that because I loved God, you know, just in that way. I had that same kind of zeal and tenacity. But once I became a wife and a mother, it's exhausting. Doing ministry on that level while working a full-time job while also being a mother is exhausting. And I felt depleted all the time. I remember for a season of about five or six consecutive years, I was hospitalized for um, exhaustion. So I was like completely dehydrated. All of my mineral levels, vitamin le levels were like uh, at a deficit, like I was deficient in, in I was really taking my body through because I lived nonstop for like five, five or more years. I just. Welcome to my party. That's how we do around here. This is Single You, the podcast. I am your host, Rika. And I, I'm an NLP certified life coach and also the founder of Single You Academy. That is my online coaching program. You know what I do? I help the ambitious millennial single woman discover her worth. That means you. So that you, girl, can stop tying your worth and identity to men and stop being a man pleaser. So if you are a woman who is sick of having an unsuccessful single life, if you are sick of the revolving door of dysfunctional relationships, listen, they may have a different name, but it's the same type of relationship. Or you're doing the tug of war back and forth with the same guy and you're sick of that. 
You want better when it comes to men and setting boundaries, knowing yourself, understanding your worth and what makes a healthy relationship versus an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, I'm willing to bet nobody has ever had that conversation with you. But listen, I'm not here to judge. I have an abusive ex and an ex that cost me $10,000. Yeah, stick around, listen to the podcast enough, and you will hear those stories. All right, so you've come to the right place if you need to hear that singleness is not a punishment and that you are worthy regardless of your relationship status. Yeah, I'm a certified life coach, but I will tell you this. I am no expert. I just learned a few things that I would like to teach you as well. You know, as Maya Angelou says, once you learn, you teach. And when you know better, you do better. So now that I'm doing better, I am reaching back out for you, girl. Here's my hand. Grab it. So thank you and welcome. You're in the right place. I got you if you got you. This is Single You, the podcast. Hey, thanks for being here. Now let's go ahead and get into the episode. So again, I want to thank Dr. Tayari Wilson for, oh man, being on my show, Single You, the podcast. This, we've been trying to do this for like Forever. six months. Yes, <laughs> at least. <laughs> I took a summer break um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, with scheduling, you know, as, as we are all busy um, yes. getting our schedules together. So I'm just excited to have you on here because you have an amazing story. You're an amazing person. Um, And so, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have this conversation. (laughs) Exactly. So, as always, um, I start with my first question that I ask everybody. Mm -hmm. So, did anybody have a conversation with you about what makes a healthy relationship versus an unhealthy relationship when you were growing up? You know what? I that was not really a conversation that we had in my house coming up. We didn't really talk about healthy versus unhealthy. I don't think I remember even really having a conversation about that until I was an adult or like an adult as in maybe like 19 or 20 um, and probably more so in a Christian church space kind of a context. But honestly, not only did we not really discuss it, I didn't really see healthy relationships modeled uh, in my family or around me outside of my grandparents. Um, but no, it was not something that we, that we talked about. We just learned how to make it work, how to stay together, no matter what, but when it's time to stay, when it's time to go, what healthy relationships look like? No, we didn't have that conversation. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about that, how to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, that was at your detriment here in a bit. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to get into your background growing up, right? So I mm-hmm. just say you grew up in the church. You had a grandma. Did you oh, have man. parents? Like what? How did you grow up? Who raised you? So I was raised by a single mother. My mom and dad were married, but I lost my dad to suicide when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents did not have a healthy relationship. It was very volatile. My father had served in the uh, military. And when he got out and came home, my father had a drug addiction. He uh, battled with alcoholism. And so their relationship was extremely volatile. It was extremely violent at times. And so for me, it was not the example of what a healthy relationship was supposed to be. If, at, if anything, it was the um, complete opposite of what is not acceptable and what should not be present in a relationship. Um, my mom 
um, still raised us in the church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, very charismatic, strict holiness, very rigid um, ways of thinking and teaching. And so um, the women in the church that I saw, even who were married and who were in relationships were taught, you stay together till death do you part, no matter what. Uh, divorce was not an option. It was not something that they even really discussed. If anything, they talked about why you should stay, how you should stay. And oftentimes they talked about how uh, women in particular, right? Because a lot of misogyny and, and chauvinism present in those spaces, why you were responsible for why your marriage was not working and what you needed to do as a woman to make sure that your spouse was happy and that your marriage worked and all the reasons why you should stay and not leave and how staying made you a better woman, a better Christian and a good wife. Um, my grandparents had been married for over 40 years, got married at like four. I believe my grandmother was 14. He was 17. And you know, that's what they did back then. Beautiful relationship. Remember seeing him patting her bottom in the kitchen sometimes until he passed. However, when my grandfather passed, I think I was like 13 or 14. So I was, I still didn't get enough exposure to that, uh, especially not having grown up in the house with them to really see um, what that healthy relationship and how that model, um, how it was modeled and what it was supposed to look like up close. So unfortunately, I just didn't have the examples and I just didn't have anyone in my life to have that conversation with. So- and Right. And to even step in and say, like, you know, our grandparents mm -hmm. are not going to sit here and be like, yes, we have a healthy marriage and this right. is how we got to this. They're not going to um, uh, offer up that information. We would have yes. we would have had to have asked. Yes. 15, mm -hmm. Yeah. Not knowing that we're growing up in the 90s. To how to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing all of these people in our lives, and then the images and rap music, and, and yeah. what our favorite celebrities are doing. So we're just like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, let me piece together uh, mm -hmm. what I think is a relationship, and then we just make it work, right? Right. What's goals, right? The right. culture taught us, the media yeah. taught us. Um, whatever we saw on TV is where we kind of learned and who we gleaned from. The Huxtables, right. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You know, you look at these other families and you say, oh, that sounds supposed to be like Aunt, Aunt Viv and, and Uncle Phil. That's right. what my relational dynamics should look like to be healthy um, in context of a, of a healthy Black marriage. And so there were some examples, but again, to have those examples right there headed in front of you all the time on a consistent basis and to be able to have those conversations, no. Um, I don't think it was until my I was a married woman myself that my grandmother and I started having conversations about healthy marriage and even having her, um, you know, kind of be being welcoming of sharing what made her marriage work and why it was actually a healthy marriage. So, right. So I do want to I want to ask you some some uh, questions about that. But before yeah. we get to the conversations you were having with your grandma, it's something you just said. And I just had a thought. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because we're of the same age. I know you mm -hmm. just, do you mind just turned. Yep. There we go. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, but so yeah, so we grew up on the Huxtables, like you said, in the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and yes. those characters, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, they were healthy. Mm -hmm. but it's interesting that I know that I thought this, and I want to see if you thought this. Mm -hmm. That the only way to get the Huxtable marriage or mm -hmm. the the, uh, the Fresh Prince marriage, mm -hmm. I gotta go through some BS. 
man and to go and then and then once you get on the other side it's that struggle love right struggle love struggle right. love was like it was the norm it was considered uh because they people would tell you marriage is hard and you, you're gonna go through yeah. something and you're gonna go through some stuff but shouldn't you know the things that you go through to arrive at a place of healthy um should not include toxicity dysfunction neglect or abuse at all Right. Again, there was nobody to bridge the gap to say, listen, uh -uh. sure, the Huxtable marriage, what we see, it looks, you know, and I'm, I'm doing in air quotes because these are characters. We don't know these people. Yeah. Sure. Great, mm -hmm. great marriage to us, like what we see on the TV. But we didn't know that we didn't have to go through the BS to get that right. because there was nobody there to connect the dots mm -hmm. and yeah. nobody there to let us know. Okay, you don't have to go through that. Uh -huh. And then we didn't know to ask the question. Right, right. We how didn't have language. We didn't know what to ask. We There really was. I love how you say, you know, there was no one there to bridge the gap. There really were so many gaps, um, so many unanswered questions. And then again, if it's not a dialogue that you're having that hasn't even so much as being been introduced in your home, then you don't even know how to have that kind of conversation. Where, where do you even begin? How would you exactly? There you yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, so then let's let's talk about your grandma since you um, uh, mentioned that uh, you know that was part of the raising of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am curious to know, and maybe your grandma didn't say this, so let, let me ask this question first. Mm -hmm. You said that people were telling you how to be a good wife and how to stay in this marriage, and you don't get a divorce. What yeah. was a good? What did they explain as a good wife? What was their definition? What were what were we supposed to do to keep this man? You know what? That com those conversations didn't come from my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother and I had very few conversations about marriage. Um, once I became a wife, and actually, the most vivid conversation that I remember having with her was actually a conversation with she and my mother, where they felt like I was doing too much as a wife. Um, when the messages that came to me about keeping a, a husband happy and how to be a good wife, um, some of those messages came from my mother, but most of those messages came from the church. Um, it was about being a Proverbs 31 woman. It was about uh, being submissive. Those messages were about, and nothing is wrong with those things, but I do think that there is a way that you can take something that is meant to be healthy um, and pervert it something that's good and it can be perverted. And so in these spaces, I think it was perverted in a lot of ways. And so it really placed the burden of a successful marriage on the wife, on the woman, making sure that, that your husband was happy and that all of his needs were met and that whatever he needed for me to be, that I was willing to conform and be those things, even if they weren't a part of who I was um, kind of generically or naturally, um, if that meant that um, he had a preference for the way that I showed up in spaces, you know, even as, as it relates to how I looked or what I wore or how I spoke, how loud I spoke, what color my hair was, all of those uh, kind of details, the expectation was that I would um, conform, that I would make the change and that I would be, be or become whatever it was that he needed me to be so that I could have a happy home, so that I could have a successful marriage and so that I wasn't a hindrance to my husband and what was on his life. Wow. Okay. And yeah. we are definitely uh, here in a minute going to get into uh, <laughs> your, your marriage, your first marriage. Um, but before then, I love how you said, um, you know, the church, right? They, mm -hmm. Especially back then. Yeah. Um, the Proverbs 31. Mm -hmm. And 
now that I'm older at this big age, <laughs> I'm like the Proverbs 31 woman. And, and I remember having this conversation, um, I believe it was with my cousin Linnea on this here podcast, yeah. which um, for those listening, I'll link it in the show notes. But what does that even mean? And why do you want to be a Proverbs 31 woman? And yeah. can you even get there? Yeah. You know I mean? And so my cousin who is in a, a marriage uh, and very happily, um, and I, I think they're on year 19, maybe year 20 now, Okay. But she is like, I don't even want to be a problem. <laughs> I am tired. So describing towards that. And this is a minister saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that wanting to be that as a Christian woman, as a woman of faith, is um, at our detriment. Okay. Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Like we just think we have to be this perfect being. <laughs> In order to be in this perfect marriage, which yeah, obviously, uh, perfect. perfect. So, um, so I just wanted yeah. to, say that. yeah, yeah. I I have no issue with who the Proverbs thirty one woman is or how she shows up in scripture. I think that that was who she was. Who she That's was. the first thing. That was who exactly. she was, yep. and who she was was it was beautiful and it was honorable within context of the time and the culture and the need. Um, and I think that now it's possible for us to still ultimately be honorable women, women who are worthy of um, recognition and some accolade, right? But I think that the way that we show up as a Proverb 31 woman today is different from how it was in the time that that uh, scripture was written. And so, I, yeah, I'm still a Proverbs 31 woman, but it doesn't mean that my life is in perfect alignment with that of the woman that's spoken of in the scripture. Absolutely. So, and I love yeah. how you say that. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's who she was. Yeah. My, my Proverb 31 is not her Proverb 31. <laughs> I love that. I love, that. I love the mindset shift. I love that. Um, okay. Yeah. So then let's um, talk about the conversation that, well, actually let's get into the relationship first. Cause okay. I know you um, said to me in a previous conversation that you felt like you gotten into an arranged marriage at 20. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about that. And then we will talk about the moment where your grandmother and mother told you, uh, you're doing too much. You're doing too so, much. Oh, yeah. How do we get there, right? It's like, how do we get there? So why yeah. do you say you feel like you were in an arranged marriage at 20? Tell me yeah. that. So I grew up with my ex-husband. We, we met in like the seventh grade. We were like 12 and 13. And um, at first we couldn't stand each other. And then over some time we became best friends because we were like two Pentecostal kids sharing a similar space. So we had a lot that we could relate to with each other because of our values and beliefs and et cetera. So we grew up as best friends. We, um, after high school, I went off to college. He stayed behind. He was an ordained minister at like 14 years old. And um, I got involved in a relationship with someone, that person, yeah, seriously, 14. Wow. Um, and so the person that I dated my freshman year died. He was killed. And then my best, he was my best friend at the time. My ex-husband was a person who really helped me to um, kind of be restored. So I started going to church with him and we started spending a, a a ton of time together in ways that we had never done before. And then we eventually started dating. Um, in that time, we were spending, again, so much time together and um, we started dating and we started to like each other and love each other. And so when you're dating, especially in an apostolic space and a Pentecostal, very charismatic space, again, it's very rigid. And so they tell you it's better to marry than to burn. Right. Y'all need to get married. 
And so uh, he and I actually, uh, we had premarital sex. And so as a result of that, I got pregnant with my first daughter. And after service on one Sunday, my pastor called us in and he said, um, when are y'all getting married? And so we were like, we don't know, you know, we're, we're 20. We don't know when we're going to get married. We don't even know what we're doing after next week. And so um, he said, y'all are getting married or y'all find y'all somewhere else to go to church. Y'all getting out of here. <laughs> and so he turned to him and he called his name. He said, do you love her? And he said, yes, sir. And he said, do you love him? And I said, yes, sir. And he told him to get down there and propose. And he proposed. And then we were engaged. 30 days after that, we were married. I was nine months pregnant. And 30 days after that, we were, we were we were married. And so I say that it was very much an arrangement because it, the decision was not ours. The, the, the decision had been taken from us and we had basically been told, y'all have done this thing. It's dishonorable. It's shameful. Y'all are going to get married to make it right, which was really old school, right? Even in the early 2000s, like people really weren't doing that anymore. Right. But... <laughs> But that's what that's the option that we were given. And because I, we were so submitted to our leadership, we were submitted to the house. We feared God. We feared him probably more than God. We got married. And my mother was completely in a complete opposition. She was like, don't do this. Don't get married. That's not your husband. And I was like, this is what our bishop, this is what our leader requires. And I'm going to do it because remember, yeah. I lost my father at eight years old. Right. I didn't have a father. And this man was the closest thing to a father figure that I had. So I had this gaping hole in me where I needed to be validated. I needed acceptance. I needed a father's love. I needed a father's approval. And so if it was required for me to be a good daughter, to be a good Christian, to be a godly woman, that I have to marry this person, then because you say I have to do it, then I'm going to do it. I, I, I... <laughs> deep breaths I know. <laughs> because I just this could go so many ways right now yeah I, I just well good for mom for standing up and, and saying this is oh man totally understand where you were to be that young having mm -hmm. that goal yeah and also, we especially as women just want to be good girls just want to be good that's I, it no that's it so that's it. Is what I have to do to be good Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then it's like, I'm sure you thought my Bishop wouldn't steer me wrong. Right. I, I really trusted him yeah. and I trusted his, um, his long sight concerning my life. Yeah. You know, he was not only a Bishop, but he was someone who walked in like a prophetic gift. And I believe that he understood what was on my life, but what I learned later, and I still believe to this day, and I'm not saying I'm necessarily right. I believe it was done more so to protect his son, right? Which was my ex, his spiritual son, than it was to protect me. The decision was not made out of concern for what was on my life, but more so out of concern for what was on his son's life. And the fact that he knew that he had a pastoral call and he yeah. wanted to try to clean everything up and try to fix it. And he so can't have this blemish. Can have this blemish. You want to maintain his credibility. Right, so. which, which is... And I say blemish because that's what he was thinking. I don't think that having a child out of wedlock or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> is looking at you with blemishes on you, right? <laughs> the, way just, the way we think is... is, is, is um... but yeah, also, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I also <laughs> wanted to point out the fact that um, 
they he pushed for you to be married 30 and then 30 days later boom we're married we but had to be married before the baby came we got married on august the 7th my daughter was born on august the 31st what he said to us was if you have your baby and you're not married she's gonna be a bastard you don't want to bastardize your baby yeah so there was a lot of pressure like, oh my God, what kind of mother would I be if I bastardized my child? And this is your first. So you're like, yes. what? And I'm like 20. Right. So I was like, I got to get married. I got to get married and I got to get married right now. And then, so let me ask you this. I feel like I know the answer, but I do want to have this conversation. Yeah. He's, he's getting, ma making you guys get married, basically. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the, the emphasis was more on the marriage about getting married mm -hmm. instead of being two people who were ready to be married. Where was yeah. the teaching? Where yeah. was the, the um, uh, what do they call it now? The, um, not the counseling, marital counseling. Like where yeah. uh -huh. was that? It was missing, right? We didn't even have that. We didn't have time to do any kind of marital counseling. I just don't think any of those factors mattered to him at the time. I think it was really about um, being more reactive and trying to control the narrative. And so in order to fix it and in order for him, for us to be quote unquote restored, to be qualified, to be used in that ministry and in that space, uh, this was what we had to do. This was the expectation. And because we both, both my ex-husband and I, um, really did have major daddy wounds. Mm -hmm. um, that man was our father figure. He was our father and we, were gonna, we weren't gonna disappoint him. And so for me and my, my thinking, that very much made it essentially an arranged marriage. Y'all yeah, are getting well, I 100% am following your thought process on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, even in the reason why he wanted you to be married, I definitely think it was more about him than it, it was. was. It he was. was yeah. Your daughter, mm -hmm. protect all of that. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, <laughs> this is why I love my podcast so much because obviously it's faith-based and we, yeah. everybody on my podcast has pretty much grown up in church, like 99% of the people that I, I speak to. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that at the end, um, which we'll get to at the end, yeah. is, is that we still love Jesus, even still. though humans <laughs> human, human, like, led us astray and really yes. harm. Mm -hmm. And so I can't wait for that piece of the story because I know you're still in ministry. I know you still love some Jesus like me. Yes. Um, and I love that for us. Like, yeah, the relationship was still able to stay intact mm -hmm. regardless of what humans did to us. So, yes. Love that. Okay. So we get married. Yeah. Daughter, how was the relationship? Talk about that. Was it? Yeah. So we, what happened? Yeah. So we get married. We have our daughter. Of course, it's a lot of pressure. We're young we're broke, we're not prepared to be married, and now we have a new baby. A year after that, we get pregnant again, and now we have two babies under the age of two, and we're still young, ill-prepared, and we're broke. So there's a lot of pressure. We are still essentially best friends, but we really don't know how to do marriage, and so we're learning and we're adjusting. Um, and then the other part of that is that we're really doing a lot of ministry. We're serving in several different capacities. We're working full time. And then in year five, um, I find out that he's having an affair, right? He is committing. Yeah, he's <laughs> there's infidelity. And he's involved with this woman who's a part of our same ministry. And they've been having this ongoing relationship for about four months. And I almost uh, just completely uh, fall apart. 
right? So I'm just like, oh my God, I can't do this. You know, I'm feeling very betrayed. And I realized that I have two babies. I want to say at the time, the girls are like four and five. And I have this revelation that if he ever decided to leave or walk away, that I would be a single mother with two little babies and I probably wouldn't be able to survive. So I make a conscious decision uh, to go back to college, right? Because I have no education. I get saved at 19. God saves me beautifully. All I want is Jesus. I don't care about things. I don't care. I feel like I don't need anything but God. And yeah. so I'm, I live my life to do ministry, what have you. And so I go back to school. Because at this time, also, sorry to cut you off, but I just want to uh, put this out there as well, because I remember in a previous conversation we had, mm -hmm. at this moment, before you even knew that he was cheating, mm -hmm. you felt like, oh my God, I'm so excited to be a wife. I'm honored. All I want is to be a good wife. Yeah. All, all at this point in time, all I want is to be a good wife, right? Literally, I'm like Martha Stewarting it. Okay. I'm like, you know, matching drapes and <laughs> you know, just everything is perfect. My home is perfect. I'm taking care of him. I'm catering to him. It's an honor to be a wife. It's an honor to cater to him. He's my best friend, but he's also my husband. And he has this amazing and this enormous call of God on his life. I know one day he's going to go into pastoral ministry. So my role in his life is to be the ultimate help me, right? It's yeah. to make sure that I show up for him in whatever way that he needs, because this is what I've been taught. Yeah. And this is what I'm happy to do. I'm more than happy to do it because if it means that he's going to be successful and, and he's going to do well and he's going to thrive, I get to be a part of that. And we've kind of done it together, right? So I'm excited. Yeah. So I'm catering, I'm catering, I'm catering, whatever, you know, and that's essentially how the conversation came up with my grandmother and my mom after work one day, they take me to my grandmother's house and she say, we need to talk to you. And they say, you're doing too much. You can't do everything for him, baby. You know, you're a good wife, but you can't do everything for him because essentially that's what I was trying to do. That's what I was doing. And that's what he allowed. Right. And so going over and above, because for some people, our natural proclivity is to kind of be an overachiever, right? We just go over and above. Especially Black women. Especially, especially Black women. women. Yes. And especially if you are battling with something like perfectionism, which yes. was something that I wrestled with. So I wanted to be a perfect whatever, a perfect wife, a perfect mother, a perfect minister. So a lot of those things were a part of me. And that, of course, was birthed out of those daddy wounds, right? You don't have that. You need that validation. So right. you're going to be perfect. And so when I discovered that he had been having this um, this extramarital affair relationship, it was crushing to me. And I wanted to die. Literally. Right. Right. And before we even get to the, the pivot and going back to school, I, I, yeah. I just, I'm still trying to paint Go ahead. The, the picture of where you are. Right. And especially in the first five years. So yeah. And for your mom and grandmother <laughs> to see that. Right. So to see that and be like, OK, we got to have an intervention. Intervention. Do you remember, like in the, those moments, even though you felt honored and you wanted to be a good wife, were you tired, girl? Were you? Yeah, I lived tired. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. No, no worries. <coughs> I lived tired. I was working full time. The girls were in diapers again up until maybe like three and four. Um. So I had two toddlers essentially. I was serving in multiple capacity. I was like an armor bearer or an adjutant to my pastor's wife, my first lady. I was like a women's group uh, leader. I was on an accessory prayer team. I served in like five or six different roles in ministry. Oh. And I remember before he and I got married, we had this conversation. He said, you know, anybody that I marry has to understand that ministry is my life. I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing ministry. Yeah. So it was kind of like an understanding that this was the expectation. 
yeah. you, if you were going to be together, if we were ever to get married, ministry was going to be the center of our life. And I was okay with that because I loved God, you know, just in that way. I had that same kind of zeal and tenacity. But once I became a wife and a mother, it's exhausting. Doing ministry on that level while working a full-time job while also being a mother is exhausting. And I felt depleted all the time. I remember for a season of about five or six consecutive years, I was hospitalized for um, exhaustion. So I was like completely dehydrated. All of my mineral levels, vitamin le levels were like uh, at a deficit, like I was deficient. And in, in, I was really taking my body through because I lived nonstop for like five, five or more years. I just, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Trying to put myself in your shoes. And then yeah. there's, I feel like there's two things going on right in, in that moment for mm -hmm. you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. it one is the 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 thought process that a lot of women of faith have, especially in their baby um, years of being, you know, coming to God and stuff. Is well, I have to do all of these works in to order to be good yeah. and in order for Jesus to love me. Mm -hmm. And then you have, so you have that thought process, and then also, well, I have to do all of these works in order to be a good wife and yeah. in order to keep this marriage together. Absolutely. Like yeah, absolutely. There was a demand coming from two different directions. There was de the demand of what it is to be a good wife and good mother right at home. And then there's the demand of ministry, what it is to be a good believer, a, a great woman of God. And then to have all of these competing messages about um, what that should look like. And so it was exhausting. And so, of course, at the time of my exhaustion to learn about this infidelity, it was crushing for me. I was already exhausted. And then the weight of this discovery almost took, took me out, almost just, you know, to call, caused me to lose my life. Because then at that moment, you're like, but I'm doing all of these I'm things. I'm doing all of these things. So how does this happen when yeah. you're showing up um, to do everything that you that you can do? like literally that you can, that is within your capacity, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually to do. And um, it took me a long time to really accept and realize that, that those decisions had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with how I showed up or how I felt to show up or who I was as a woman, who I was as a person. But I remember talking to my pastor at that time because I told him I was going to leave because my mother had come to me and she said, if you leave him right now, because remember she never supported the marriage, she said, I'll buy you a house cash for you and your Okay, your mama. Okay, mama. And so I said, well, at first I need to talk to my bishop, right? Because I'm, because I, I have, I need this validation. I need this approval. I go to him and I talk to him and he says, well, Tayari, um, did you give 120%? Oh. <laughs> because none of us give 100%. And so <laughs> I just I need to, I need to sit here for a moment. I need to. This is a because true story. The fact that we would say that to you, someone who's literally been hospitalized. <laughs> I so I was not really given permission. Cause that's what I was ultimately looking for. I was really looking for permission to walk away. And so after I was not 
essentially given permission to, to leave, you know, without feeling as though there was something more I could have done as a wife, I stayed. And the love left. I spent two or three years really praying, asking God to restore my love for him. And it just never came back. I lost a great deal of respect for him and love. And I wasn't okay. And so I said, if he ever walks away from me, I'm going to be in the worst shape of my life. I've got to do something. So I enrolled in school. He, I found out in September about the infidelity and I enrolled in school that January to get an associate's degree. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I was going to ask the timeline, like how quick. Was yeah. It? So, Next so semester, honey. <laughs> so then, okay, okay let's get the, a little bit more of the timeline. So mom and yeah. dad. You know, tell you you're doing too much. They see it in you. Obviously, you're hospitalized. Um, and then shortly after, you were not given permission to leave. So you're saying then you prayed for two more years um, before you uh, enrolled in the school. No, I went to school immediately the next semester, but I stayed in the marriage. And in that time, I was really believing God to restore the marriage post infidelity. Okay. So I spent two to three years trying to get back to where we were pre-infidelity. But the love and the respect, it just never came back for me. And, and why would it? You, I, I just, you were at that moment, I would imagine, where you were like, I'm doing all of these things and I still didn't get the prize. Oh, hell no. <laughs> right. I didn't know what else to do. I yeah. literally didn't know what else to do. I didn't know who to be. I didn't know how to be whatever would be required for this not to happen again. And I was trying to regain control of the stability and it just didn't come back. And so um, I started formulating a plan to leave. And I said, when I get a bachelor's degree, I'm gonna leave. Yeah. And you were consciously and intentionally knowing like- I I'm gone. Marriage with no education and guess what I'm about to do. Yeah. Wow. And I, and I, and so what I left, I asked for a divorce off and on occasionally for about two years. He wouldn't give me a divorce. We wound up living in the same house, but in separate rooms. And as it got closer to time for me to graduate, I started preparing to leave. And um, I think my kids, when I, so I, I wound up actually not leaving what I originally intended to. So I graduated in like a December. And what we did was we said, we're going to give this one more shot and we're going to move out of state. So we moved to Texas. Thing, we got to Texas, things went from bad to worse. And then I left and went back home to Mississippi. And then he later on came. When I came back home to Mississippi in like, I don't know, 2014-ish, 15, 15, I think, um, I filed for divorce three months after I got back. And so by March of 2015, we were officially divorced. Let me um, I... I, I, I need to give you your flowers <laughs> because to that is hard to know like i'm gonna leave yeah i gotta get this degree first yeah imagine how hard that was yeah um mm -hmm. and so i just applaud you for <laughs> sticking up for you strategic and knowing like i gotta take care of these babies okay so mm -hmm. i gonna mm -hmm. take you mm -hmm. are so smart and you are so strong. <laughs> well, thank you. I did it. And you didn't deserve any of that. I appreciate um, that. So, yeah. And I know we're, you know, so far removed from 2015, but yeah. I, 
what a story for you to, I think this is the first time on the podcast when I have over a hundred episodes mm -hmm. that somebody planned the exit. Oh and yeah. I'm going to strategically do this. So mm -hmm. I just, girl, I, I, <laughs> and so my question is when you, um, found out he was um, he was cheating and you um, confronted him and stuff. What is he saying at the time? Like, well, it, it, oh, well, like, what is he saying to you? Like, sorry, like, I. You know what? He was very apologetic. And what had kind of happened to him was during the time of his infidelity, we had really amazing jobs. We were working for the Department of Homeland Security. And, and after about four or five years of working for Homeland Security, we were laid off. Um, I was able to immediately get another, um, you know, job. He really struggled to find something. And so he kind of felt like he had let his family down. He was really hurting and disappointed. He didn't really know what to do. Of course, he had made more money at that time in his life than he ever had before. And so he was looking for comfort. You know, he was looking for ways. So I believe that the infidelity was essentially like some kind of a coping mechanism. And um, at least that's what I believed at the time until later discovering that that was <laughs> there were other things I learned about after the divorce that I didn't know about at the time. But um, he was very apologetic. And that's kind of why I put the work in after the discovery, because I wanted to try to make it work. I was, I had compassion for him. I had compassion for the fact that we both grown up under very strict kind of uh, rules and values. He hadn't really been out in the streets. He didn't have the experiences that most men his age had had by the time he got married. So for me, that allowed me to show him a lot of compassion. I think you're muted. I don't know if you realize you're muted. No, yep. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I met it. I was angry and I was hurt. And what I think I, I internalized a lot of the blame also. And um, I, I was like, okay, once we kind of got over the hump of the hurt, I was like, okay, let's try to make it work. But for me, things were never the same. And I just didn't love him anymore. And I really knew I didn't love him anymore because when I was getting ready to exit the relationship after kind of asking for a divorce a few times over the course of two years and kind of living under the same roof, but separately, um, I kind of started moving, moving in a way that I was single and I was like, I'm going to go on a date or I'm going to see other people until you give me the divorce I need. Cause I'm, I'm leaving. And so, um, I think the embarrassment that came along with my lifestyle change, kind of trying to force him into giving me the divorce that I wanted, um, was incredibly hurtful for him. And, um, it helped to get me where I needed to be so that I could exit and right. finalize my, my, my exit plan. And you said something um, in that where you um, internalized some of the blame for his cheating. <sighs> Absolutely. It's like, I, mm -hmm. I, I only wanted to point that out because I, I feel like we as women do that more often than not. It must be yeah. my fault. Yeah. I'm in 30 pounds overweight or I'm mm -hmm. not cooking well enough or I'm, whatever that is, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, better for us and for us to understand cheating and all of that, any choices that people make, it is their choice. It's their own. Yeah. Yeah. On their own has yeah. nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but the years that it takes to understand that and the work that you have to do to get to that point is what's so incredible. It took me so many, it took me to go to school to become a clinician, to be able to understand the dynamics of what transpired in my own experience. And then to really kind of free myself of the blame um, for his decisions. Um, and then being able to really come to the realization that the way that I showed up in the marriage to really try to be perfect in every way and to go over and above was rooted in my own uh, emotional deficits. And I had my own healing work to do so that I wouldn't, that didn't happen to me again. So it was definitely a learning process. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, and, and I'm glad that you uh, uh, talked about being a clinician because I do, I, did you, when you decided to go back to school, mm -hmm. And you decided to go into what? What was your your major? Well, I, I was a psych major. Well, initially human services, and then child and family studies, and then psychology, and then I also did was an MFT program. Was that something that you were always interested in, or do you feel like you went into that lane because of everything that was going on in your life and marriage? You know what? I ironically, when I first went to school, immediately after high school. That was my path because of my father, because of how I lost my father to suicide. That experience let me know that we definitely had a crisis regarding mental health in black and brown spaces, and especially in the in the black church, because it was something that we never, ever, ever talked about, especially in the 80s and 90s, only recently, right, in the last three to five years. So um, I knew I wanted to do something with mental health. And so, but I didn't know how it was going to impact my own life. And I didn't realize the understanding that it was going to give me about my own experiences. And so it was always about being in a position to help other people heal, but never about me being able to heal myself because the church taught me just pray, baby, pray, cry out, get on the altar and stay there until you healed and praise them. You got to praise your way through and you got to turn around three times and clap and, you know, and. That's how I grew up. And so for me, if I felt the residue of hurt, I before becoming a clinician, I always thought I got to pray more. I got to fast more. I got to give it to God. Uh, I put it on the altar. I got to go back. I must have picked it up somewhere. And now I got to go put it back down. I got to cast my cares. And it wasn't that. It's just that I had done the spiritual work, but I hadn't done the soul work, the work, the mind work. Yeah. And that's why I kept coming up short. And so until I learned that, um, I wasn't really able to fully heal myself. But yeah, I never went in with the intentions because of the marital experience. My intentions were rooted in how I lost my dad. Right, right. And also, yes, yeah, sorry about um, your dad. Thanks. Uh, you know, so I just wanted to, to say mm -hmm. that. So, okay, so now we are divorced and you um, have your degree. What is life like right after that? <laughs> so I, what I learned, life after that, um, it was different. It was the adjustment of learning what it was to do life as a single woman with two kids. It was me being angry and hurt with how it was handled, the lack of support for the ministry I'd been a part of. So I did leave the church for 18 months. I didn't leave God per se, but I just quit going. And um, it was me leaving the marriage with nothing because I didn't want anything. I just wanted the divorce and literally starting from scratch. It was getting a place and sleeping on a blow up mattress for the first two or three months and then slowly kind of rebuilding my life. 
And God showed me a lot of favor and a lot of grace and connected me to some amazing people. And it didn't take me long to rebuild. Um, but it was a process learning how to be attentive in the night. If you hear a sound, knowing that now if, if somebody's coming in your place is you, you are the person who has to respond. Yeah. Um, you're the person who has to do all those things that he once did. You're now responsible. It is, you have to get roadside assistance now. Cause if you get a flat, you're not going to go out there and change it. You know, you don't know really what to do. And so, um, it was learning how to really empower myself in another way. Uh, it forced me to be fearless, uh, more bold, uh, more determined. It really strengthened me in ways that I didn't even realize I needed to be strengthened. And it also helped me to realize more so about the calling on my own life. Because the time I was married, because I knew he was called to pastoral ministry, everything in our family, everything in our life was centered around him and his calling. And so it it changed me, but it caused me to change for the better. Yeah. So I want to, so in that time, right, you're in your own place, realizing like, it's me, if somebody breaking, I got to get this flat tire thing. So I got to mm -hmm. get this, I got to die. Everything's what, on me now. Everything's on you. Mm -hmm. What does healing look like for you? Like, mm. What are you doing? Did you know that I have to intentionally heal this? Yeah. And also, how did you continue your relationship with God? So it's kind of a two-part question. Yeah. My healing process started in school. Once I got my bachelor's degree, because first I got, before I left him, I got an associate's and a bachelor's. I immediately went right back. <laughs> Tayari, be, you be skimming over that. Yeah, so I got an associate's and a bachelor's. And so, yeah. no. Well, it was, five, it was a five-year plan. It was a five-year plan. So oh. an associate's only takes two years, bachelor's, but I did two and two. So, and I already had some credits from my younger years. And so, um I had some amazing mentors that I met during the time that I was an undergrad. And these were women who looked like me that had PhDs that were doing major things in academia. And they saw something in me. And so they really pushed me to go all the way. And so I got accepted into an MFT program, uh, wound up uh, doing an MFT program, um, then went back and did psychology uh, masters and all these things. And so um, my healing process honestly began in the MFT program because essentially while you're going through the program to become a, a therapist, a marriage and family therapist, you are going through therapy. You are learning all of these about these schools of thought, these strategies, and it's working on you as you learn it. As you're reading, you're seeing yourself. As you're doing, getting your hours, these clinical hours, these supervision hours, and you're being taught how to facilitate a session you yourself are being seen. You know, it's like when you're sitting in the church service and the pastor says something and you look around to see who's been telling your business. That's how it was. Yep, so <laughs> that was the beginning of my healing process. And then I realized my children are going to need assistance with getting through this transition. And so I enrolled me and my girls in family therapy and we went to therapy to do our healing. About a year after that, I said, I got to get back in church. I need a church home. I need a safe place. So I started visiting with the ministry. But the church that I had come out of, I had been there for 15 years. And so most people where I was from associated me with that ministry, which was very well known. So I started going to a church. I stayed there for a while. It didn't quite give me everything that I felt like I needed. So I went to another one. And then I, then I moved. I wound up leaving Mississippi and moved to another state. And I never left God. I didn't blame God for his humanity or for my humanity or for the humanity of the other people who contributed to my hurt and pain. Okay. 
I was always able to keep the two separated. And I realized that my connection with God could not drop. I could, he yeah. was literally the source of my strength, right? So like the scripture says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. All the strength that I was drawing to help get me through that season wasn't just from the, um, the mental, emotional, social wellness approach or needs that were being met through therapy, but also through the spiritual needs that are being met by staying connected to God. So I never stopped believing. Yeah, that, again, I love that for us. Um, the uh, woman that I had on before you, Claudia, mm -hmm. same, you know, she was like, I never, I never thought that it was God. Yeah. Me. I, I never, and I, I love that for us because obviously there are some people who do blame God. For yeah. Me. Now I was angry and I had questions for God and I was like, we need to talk about this. We're yeah. And question it after. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because there was a season in my life where I had been incredibly faithful and incredibly committed to the things of God. And like I told you, when I married him, he was like, ministry is our life. And I was like, I'm with it. And so I was like, God, how, how could you allow this to happen to me in this way? Right. But I still loved him. Right. 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 Okay. So now I want to, um, trying to formulate this question to make it, um, way that I wanted. So I guess I would ask you what, so marriage to you before was, you know, you felt honored. I'm going to, I'm going to serve him and I'm going to do all of these things and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. What, what is marriage to you now? If you were to yeah. ever get married again, yeah. what would be your ideal situation and how you would act? Yeah, I think marriage to me now is about being true to your own, like authentic, your authentic self, your true self. I think that it is about being honest with people before you enter into a marriage about who you are and about what you need. It's about having a real practical understanding of what your expectations are and what their expectations are. I think it is the collaboration of your vision for your life, right? Your individual vision um, and then your collective vision for your lives together. And with that, I think that when it is meant to be, when it is the right match, the right fit, that no one has to sacrifice, self-sacrifice, either themselves or the vision that they have for their lives in order to accommodate the other. I think they should fit together harmoniously. Um, and when they don't fit together, then I think that that sometimes is an indication that this is not your person at least not your person for you to do life with. Um, do I still plan to cater if the Lord allows me to be a wife again? Am I going to cater to my husband? Absolutely. Not to the degree of self-sacrificing though. You know what I'm saying? There has to be some limitations in how I show up. Um, and it should not cause me to have to disregard my personal capacity in order to be what you need. Let that simmer. <laughs> because that is what I want, you know, for uh, anybody who touches my content to get the mind shift, uh, the mind shift. Yeah. Up. I do not have to work for this love and, and um, make myself small and exhaust myself to the point of going to yeah. the hospital to be loved. I am yeah. worthy of it. Yeah. And so how do I want to operate in a marriage, in a relationship? Yeah. And so, yes, I, absolutely. I want to love a man the way that I know that he receives it. 
Yeah. I want him to love me in the way that he knows that I receive it. Yeah. I don't think that that is going to be any depletion at all. Yeah. If anything, it should have the opposite effect and it should give you life. It should it should strengthen you. It should invigorate you. Right. It should give you joy. And if it is depleting, if it is something that is required that you have to give to your detriment, then that's not love. And I don't want that. I've yeah. done that. Yeah, we're not doing that no more. Okay. Um, so are you dating now? And how is it different from obviously before? You know what? I have dated some. Um, I'm kind of a one person at a time kind of dater, although I know that kind of goes against what the girls are doing now. People are really pushing the whole multi-dating thing. I don't have the capacity to multi-date. So I yeah. don't, I don't multi-date. Um, I've been on some dates, but I'm not in a relationship right now. Um, I do believe, so my, my youngest daughter, I have two daughters, one's in college already. The other one is graduating this year. So I do expect that after graduation in May, uh, after my baby leaves home, that I will make myself more available and be a lot more open to dating in the way that I haven't been um, over these last, you know, eight or nine years. Right, so, right. Forward. And um, speaking and congratulations, yeah, graduating and all that <laughs> for your daughters. Thanks. Speaking of them, right? And so yeah. you obviously are their mother, mm -hmm. and coming from a place where nobody had conversations um, with you about what makes a healthy relationship. Are you having those conversations with your daughter? I imagine you are, especially <laughs> all the time. <laughs> we talk about relationships all the time. And what I love about my girls is that, and I thank God for this, I've really been able to do something for them that wasn't done for me, meaning I've been able to create a space that is safe enough to feel comfortable talking about these things, having these conversations. And I'm like, ask questions or what do you think or how do you feel? And so um, we do talk about healthy relationships. I have taught them about what to look out for. They do know what dysfunction looks like and toxicity looks like and uh, red flags, but they also know green flags and they also know what to celebrate. They also know what to look forward to. They also know what to embrace. Um, and they really do have a much better relation uh, uh, understanding, excuse me, of relationships and dating far better than what I ever had at their age. So all the time. I love that for them. I'm like, yes, go. <laughs> I love it. And I wish everybody had um, a, a mother like you for sure. <laughs> okay. So you did say green flags. Um, yeah. We talk about red flags a lot. Too much. Yeah. Right. So I want you to give us maybe two. Um, okay. Yeah. That um, someone listening right now was like, yeah, I want to date better. I want to make better choices and stuff like that when it comes to men. What are yeah. those green flags that we should be looking out for? You know what? I think if, well, the first thing that I always think about would be someone who really honors your boundaries. Someone who honors your boundaries, right? When you're not available or if something's not a good time for you, but they're just kind of uh, understanding of those things. Um, someone who you're able to say no to, no, I'm not available. No, I'm not. I can't do that for you. Or no, that really makes me uncomfortable. I think that's another major green flag when you're met with understanding um, versus being met with a challenge 
um, or some kind of gaslighting or some or lack of regard. I think that those are green flags. We have to really be appreciative of someone who will honor your boundaries, someone who understands your no and doesn't take it personally. Um, a person who is really a good listener and who remembers what you said, um, that is a green flag. Someone who you don't have to necessarily um, explain things to, you know, all the time, that is that is a green flag. You know, well, um, I wanted to, to go over here and you, why can't we go over here? Why do we have to go over there? And you have to literally explain every decision to them. Um, that is a green flag. A person who is supportive of your vision, your dreams, your ideas, um, that's a green flag, you know, and a person who makes time for you, which is one of my favorite things. I think that time is extremely valuable, uh, especially if you're dating someone who is busy, like who is a professional, who has a very, who has a, a, a lots of demands on their life. I think that when they make time for you and then they are like attentive, they are fully present in that space and in that time you spend together, that is a major green flag. And so there's lots I could go on, but those are just a few. And can make time for you without you having to beg and ask. Yeah, wants to, like willingly, right? Common sense that if you like somebody, you're going to make time. Yeah. And it's just that simple. Initiating it. Right, right, right. So, okay, I want to talk about your practice. Your Okay, yeah. You know, the, the, because I'm not sure if you're a therapist, a psychologist, I know it's kind of different. So let's talk about that because I know you have clients and all of that. So where are you now? What, what's your practice like? So I'm a psychologist. I'm a licensed psychologist. I do have a licensure. It's a licensed uh, mental health uh, counselor. So LM. HC or clinician, some people like to say, but I'm also, a, I'm a psychologist, um, essentially. And so my practice is, um, the home of my practice is in Mississippi. Um, I'm licensed in Mississippi and Louisiana, um, but I live in Texas. So I only do telehealth C-suite clients right now. So what that means is that I essentially work with uh, executives. So CFOs, COOs, all the C, C-suites. Um, (laughs) most of my clients are professional black women. That's who I really cater to. That's who my practice is really, um, geared towards. That's my primary demographic because we take on so much and the culture and society has taught us that we can't have it all. You have to choose. Do you want to be successful in family life, your personal life, or do you want to be successful in business? And so I believe that there's a way for us to have both. Um, and then there are women who are in ministry, who are pastors, who are fivefold people, pastors, evangelists, you know, prophets, apostles, da 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 da, da or leading some kind of a nonprofit or major organization that's kind of has a ministry core. Um, and so I want to make sure that while we're being super women and we're saving the world, that we first save ourselves. So, girl, because on the plane, and everybody uses this analogy, but I don't think that we understand it. When you are on the plane, what yeah. do you need to do first? Yo. First, I- <laughs> I yeah, a baby. I don't care if it's an elderly person. I don't care. You put yours on first. First, and first, able to help. So yeah, I- yeah, I love it. I yeah. love that. So when you are, um, and I guess you kind of said it, but when you're working with your executives and your super women, um, mm-hmm. is it, um, are they uh, trying to find the work-life balance? Are you working in the relationship space with them or is it kind of an umbrella of what they want? 
it really is an umbrella, but I'm going to tell you what I see more, more than anything, imposter syndrome, women who are really living this thing and walking it out, but still can't believe that it's them, that they are the ones. Issues with identity, right? So like, who am I? What, what does it say about me? How can I also be successful as a wife and mother if I'm now the CFO of X, Y, or Z? And then also unresolved trauma and grief unresolved trauma from childhood, really just not feeling uh, like they're enough. A lot of issues with validation, deep-rooted things with mommy and daddy, um, not using their resource or their accomplishment to try to fill those voids as we commonly see with men. And then with grief, sometimes they're living these amazing lives. And then let's just say one day they come home and husband is gone. Or you lose a parent that you've been caring for. You know, you've been paying for their care for the last two or three years, and then they suddenly um, pass. Really learning how to manage that grief, um, really knowing how to overcome the trauma of a sudden loss, whether it's a marital loss. Sometimes the trauma or the grief more so is about a relocate. You know, you've been working out of New York all of this time or wherever, and now you got an opportunity to go to the UK. And so now you're in a totally different space and you don't know how to transition from where you were to where you are. So you're grieving the familiar, you're grieving what's comfortable. So it's really an umbrella of things that we work on, but it, it just depends. Right, I love it. Mm -hmm. right. All right, and so um, I have two more questions. Mm -hmm. And um, the second to last is, what do you want her listening right now to take from your story? <laughs> I want women to really trust what they know to be true about themselves and what they need. If you know that you're in a situation that is destructive to you as a person, just in your humanity, if you feel yourself dying in a space, whether it's a job, a relationship, a ministry, whatever the space is, if the demand that's being placed on you is literally tearing you apart. It's time to walk away. And you have to be able to walk away knowing that the same God who gave you the strength and the capacity to be present in that place successfully for as long as you were, will also give you new strength to be successful in the new place that you'll go on to. If you know it's time to walk away, it's okay for you to make you and your wellness a priority over the expectations and the pressure of other people. Mm. Just a moment. Just and what I also heard in that as well is even if you made the choice, right? I'm yeah. gonna this and or I'm gonna get married at 19 and wanna have you. Yeah. It is okay to change your mind once you man. Listen, <laughs> the time I could have saved. <laughs> no. We don't know what we don't know. And so we're not going to have all of the information at that moment that we are making that decision. Then when we're in it, and if we're getting more information that is at our detriment, God is not mad at you. No. You are not a bad person. No. You're not going to hell. If you make the choice, especially in the relationship space, to walk away. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Do what is best for you and don't feel guilty about it. Go. Okay, so Tayari, is there anything that we missed that uh, question that I forgot to ask that you're like, oh, I just wanted to make this point as well. Um, if there's anything, it is your, it's your, uh, it's your floor. 
Yeah. The only thing I would say is that sometimes we know what we should be doing, but we feel like we don't have the strength. You know, sometimes our wellness is not enough. And in my personal situation, I drew a lot of strength from the knowledge of, of knowing that my children needed me and what I needed to be for them. And so if you are not enough, sometimes you got to look around and say, who else is it that needs me? Who is depending on me to be better and to show up as my absolute best self? Who is completely uh, dependent upon my wellness and my success? And you have to draw strength from that place. And that's okay. If that's what you have to use in order to make sure that you're able to preserve yourself, your calling, your destiny, whatever is intended for you, do what you must do to make sure that you get into the places that you're supposed to be in life. Don't delay because what does the word say? Time waits for, or what do people say? Time waits for no man. Yeah. Yeah. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, a part of you, um, with my listeners, with me. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that we know each other now, and I am definitely going to have to have you on again in 2023, which I can't right. We're all <laughs> we're just around the corner. Right. <laughs> uh, basically. Um, but no, I would love to to invite you on again um, to have other thank conversations. Um, awesome. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Consider me your homegirl in your head. Again, it's Rika. And if you need to reach out to me, listen, don't hesitate. It's not going to be weird on Twitter and on Instagram. I am just me, Rika. That's R-E-K-A. And I'm going to put my Twitter, Instagram, and email in the show notes, okay? You can also join me over in my private Facebook group titled Singleness is Not a Punishment. I mean, come on, who am I? (laughs) You know my tagline? That's my private Facebook group. The link will also be in the show notes. Now, if I said something that resonated with you and really helped you, please share this podcast with a friend because sharing is caring and you shouldn't be sitting on all this good information. So share it with your homegirl, okay? Or your homeboy. (laughs) Please do that. Also, don't forget to subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when new episodes drop. And if you have time, can you do me a favor? It'll help me out as a small business owner and a podcaster. Will you leave a rating on this episode? All you got to do is say that you liked it or you can even type out what you took away from this episode. It really helps me and keeps me going, providing free content for you. So thank you so much for doing that. Production, my intro was made by one of the greats in production land. His name is James Tyler. Thank you for my intro. And he used Beyonce's single ladies, Sorry Not Sorry by Demi Lovato. He used Dua Lipa, her song, New Rules, and also Truth Hurts by Lizzo. All right, that's all I got for you this episode. We will talk again on the next one.